Hello, plant people. I'm Linda Adams, and this is the FNGLA Plant People Podcast. Today, I'm having a conversation with one of the industry's great plantsmen, Alan Shapiro, who in the 1980s established one of the most plant-diverse nurseries in the southeastern U.S., known initially as San Falasco Nurseries, and then as Grandiflora. I'm pleased that also with us today is Ellen Shapiro, Alan's wife. Ellen has been involved in the San Falasco story since the very beginning, especially the retail side. Before we begin our conversation, here's some background on Alan. A native Floridian, Alan grew up in Miami Beach, yet eager to experience colder weather, Alan attended Michigan State to learn accounting. Within two years, he returned to Florida, where he graduated from the University of Florida with a BA in English. His postgraduate lessons came from backpacking through Europe, eventually living on a kibbutz in Israel. It was at the kibbutz where Alan discovered his passion for plants and horticulture. Having returned to Gainesville and gaining experience working at various horticulture jobs, Alan bought 15 acres of land in 1981, and over the next 36 years, he established Sam Falasco Nurseries as one of the industry's most highly regarded horticulture operations, covering 106 acres, growing 2,000 varieties of containerized plants ranging from 4-inch pots to 15-gallon trees, with a team of more than 100 employees in peak season. His customer base extended to landscape companies and garden centers across the southern U.S. As if that wasn't enough to keep him busy, during the years of 1985 through 2000, Alan and his wife Ellen operated the Plant Shop, a high-end retail garden center in Gainesville. Although active in many industry associations and community groups, Alan was especially active in FNGLA, serving as its president in 1996-97. In 2000, Alan received FNGLA's Wendell E. Butler Award, FNGLA's most prestigious service award. Other notable accomplishments include being recognized as Ornamental Outlook's Operation of the Year in 2003, serving as co-founder of the Spring Garden Festival at Kanapahal Gardens in Gainesville, and being the initiator of the original Floriculture Field Day. Having retired in 2017, Alan now spends much of his time with Ellen traveling the globe, keeping close ties with his two daughters and their families, playing pickleball, and doing serious bird watching. And yes, Alan still gets his hands dirty in the garden when he has a chance. Alan, it is a delight to have you here back in the FNGLA office. Oh, it's fun to be here. And Ellen, we're happy to have you here as well. We've spent many uh, hours in this conference room over the years, yeah, haven't right we, Alan? Yeah, at this table. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, today, we want to learn how you got in the nursery industry. A lot of people get into it because it's a family business or they were interested in something about gardens when they were a kid. But you have a unique story. Can you, starting with growing up in Miami Beach, share with how you ended up with the nursery in Gainesville? Growing up in Miami Beach, 
most of the kids were expected to either become doctors, lawyers, accountants, some sort of a blue collar job. And I actually was on that path. I worked for my brother-in-law who was an accountant during the summers and my father was a lawyer. And after a couple of summers, I saw my friends were working as lifeguards or mowing lawns. And I decided I was going to try that. And I just fell in love with being outside, feeling my muscles working and seeing the product of my labor instead of adding up columns of numbers all day long under fluorescent light. It was during the Vietnam War. I was at, in school and I dropped out of the School of Economics and decided I was just going to read novels. I wanted to stay in school and keep my, my deferment as a student. And so I took classes in English literature and I actually graduated with high honors, but I didn't get a teaching degree. So I really had nothing I could do. I knew what I didn't want to do, which was work in an office, but I didn't know what I should become. So to find myself, I went hitchhiking around Europe. And as it got colder, I arrived during Oktoberfest and, uh, it was already pretty cold, but as it got colder, I heard from other hippies that were in the youth hostels that if you go south to Israel, that you could work on a kibbutz and they'd pay you $10 a month and they'd give you two packs of cigarettes a week. So I sold blood twice in one day and my backpack and I got enough money to fly to Israel. I landed in Tel Aviv. I went to an office that I was told to go to and they said, you're going to go out to this kibbutz. And I had to make my way out to that kibbutz. And when I got there, I was in heaven. I had to work from 6 to 12 every day. I could take the rest of the day off. They actually had a pool there. They had courts where I could play basketball, soccer. And the jobs were uh, very, very mundane things like shoveling manure in a chicken house or picking citrus all day long, picking apples, picking avocados. I picked a lot of fruit. Then one day they put me with the gardener and he was making cuttings of mums. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. You can take one plant, cut it up into a hundred little cuttings and stick it in soil and get a hundred new plants. Right then and there, I said, horticulture, that's what I need to get to get into. So then unfortunately I was stuck in Israel. I had to make some money working, digging ditches in the desert to get enough money to fly home. When I flew home, I went back to Gainesville, University of Florida, and enrolled in classes to become a landscape architect. I took mechanical drawing, freehand drawing, and physics, which were all requirements. And I got good grades in all of them, but I said, this isn't the right thing for me. I want to be working outside with plants. A landscape architect was only required to take two horticultural classes, basic plant ID. So um, I made up my mind that I wanted to go work at a retail nursery or a landscape company. So I went around. I could not get a job anywhere. There were only a few nurseries in Gainesville at the time, Garden Gate, Sheffields, Florida Pest Control, and Seminole Stores, and none of them needed me. So when I was on the kibbutz, I would work with the gardener trimming trees. The way we trimmed trees was that we would put a ladder against a pine tree, to the bottom branches and then we would walk up the branches and with a bow saw slung over our arm we would start cutting the branches as we climbed back down until we got to the ladder hopefully the ladder was still against the tree oh my gosh that's dangerous work <laughs> yeah well i learned that i had no fear of heights 
So when I couldn't get a job working in a nursery, I, I got a job working as a, for a tree surgery company called Saps in Gainesville. And I thought, well, I'll, I'm just going to be on the ground. It'll be something easy. And for the first week or so, I learned how to rope down limbs. I learned how to cut up, use a chainsaw and throw things in the, use a loader truck to load it on the truck. And I thought that was that. Well, the next week I come to work and they said, put on those spurs, you're going up the tree. So I had to learn how to be a climber with spurs. And I had to learn how to rope down branches that were over houses or power lines. And I was actually pretty good at it. I felt great. It was wonderful work. I got very strong. I was like a little monkey. Did you become a certified arborist? The certifications weren't big in those days. Okay. In my mind, I'm a certified arborist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I actually got to be a crew chief. So I had two other people working under me, another climber and a groundsman. And everything was fine. Uh, until one day, one, one of the guys that was under me dropped a tree on top of our, our truck. Oh, no. Yeah, so Mr. Sapp didn't appreciate that very much. Um, from there, I got a job at the university on the grounds crew working for the tree surgeon. and We had a bucket truck. What I was hoping was to get into the, uh, the nursery on the UF campus. I never did get a job there. I worked for Knoll Lake. And on the last day, after five months, um, I'd gotten a raise of a nickel after I'd been risking my life climbing trees, so I decided to call it quits. And I went in there and told him that his crews were, were very lazy and that they were avoiding work. And uh, I just decided I was done with doing tree surgery for someone else. I had actually bought some equipment, and I was doing it for people that we knew and uh, in the meantime, Ellen and I had gotten married. We uh, both loved plants. We lived in an apartment building, and uh, on our front porch, we would just get pieces of anything. I was desperate to propagate stuff. So we would take cuttings and get a leaf of this and a leaf of that and anything, and pots everywhere on our front porch. Remember, we had morning glory vine going up the trellises. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we used to like to go to Garden Gate Nursery. And I went there and I noticed one day that they had a dead tree. So I talked to Tommy Fiber, who was the owner. I said, I can cut that tree down for you. You just give me $50 worth of plants. So I, he's agreed to do it. And I, I said, but you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to be my roper. You're going to have to be the guy that helps me. So he helped me. And I had applied for a job there. And they never called me back. He helped me, and he saw that I was a good worker. So a couple weeks later, they had an opening, and I got hired at Garden Gate Nursery in Gainesville. So I owe a lot to Tommy Fiber and Riley Blitch, who were the owners of the nursery. Why, uh, why did you and Ellen decide to stay in Gainesville and not return to Miami Beach? Well, we loved Gainesville. I knew I was going to stay in Gainesville. It was just a matter of what was I going to do in Gainesville. And Ellen was a teacher. She already had a teaching job. So it was really perfect. I, when I worked at Garden Gate, I didn't really know much. I had never been to school in horticulture. So what I would do is I would take home books every night, and I taught myself. At first, uh, Riley would say, if you don't know the answer to a customer's question, just I'll be over here, you get me, and I'll come over and explain it. So I didn't know exactly about fertilizer, pesticides, or any of that stuff. 
But I went home and I did my homework and I learned it. And before long, it was Tommy and Riley that were coming to me to ask questions. We took the uh, certification together, all three of us, and I got the highest grade. The F and JLA. Well, it was called the FCHP. Yeah, right. The and we were probably in one, probably the first class that it was ever offered. We'll have to, to go look that up. Yeah, Alan, I'd like you to look so it up. I think I might be number fourteen or something. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So uh, they also had a wholesale nursery that was growing plants for for the retail nursery garden gate and also tommy fiber was a landscape architect who had a company called gainesville landscape contractors and uh so he needed plants for his landscape jobs and he had some very big jobs like he did santa fe junior college campus he did a lot of big jobs so they had a wholesale nursery that was on property 100 acres that was owned by riley's father originally and it was called san falasco nurseries it was in the san falasco state wildlife preserve and they had a third partner named Carter Osterbind who uh, was an artist, and he decided he didn't want to continue at San Falasco. So they asked me if I was interested in moving out from the retail nursery, where I'd become the manager in less than a year and a half. Would I go out to the wholesale nursery and become the propagator and grower out there? Oh, your dream job. My dream job. And I said, uh, well, let me think about it. And I was about to just say, sure, and someone suggested to me, I think it was Lawson Brown, who was uh, their landscape foreman. He said, well, you know, instead of just going out there, why don't you try to become a partner? Well, so I proposed that to them. I'll go out there if you let me earn ownership. And the way I earned ownership was that for every month I stayed, they would give me 1% ownership. So I became uh, an equal partner out there to them. Very good. And... It was two acres of nursery. And we were growing a lot of woody stuff like junipers, boxwoods, azaleas. But since I worked out at the retail nursery for so long, I knew what they needed for me to grow. So we expanded the plant palette so we would grow more of what they needed at the retail nursery. And Tommy had specific needs for his landscape jobs. This was 100 acres of property so one thing that he would send me to do would be just to wander the property with a shovel and dig up trees that were about six to seven feet tall. For instance, hop hornbeam. Nobody in the state grew hop hornbeam in containers, but they were growing wild out in the hammock on the private property of Riley. And uh, elm trees and maple trees and different things like that. This was a time when people would buy bare root trees from places like Simpson's Nursery. And then you would pot them up during the winter. And then after a year or so, they'd be ready to sell. So uh, so the nursery itself was two acres. The nursery occupied only two acres, but the property was 100 acres. Okay. So I would go off into the woods, and I would dig up trees and bare root them. This was only during the winter. And we would carry them back, as many as we could carry, and then we'd pot them up in egg cans. Now, you're going to ask me, what's an egg can? Well, in the old days, we didn't have plastic containers. This was the 70s. And uh, what you would do is you would have a contract, and people would bring you a truckload of five-gallon containers that had been used to have, they, they held eggs, and they, they sold the eggs already cracked <laughs> To restaurants. Right. And then uh, also uh, we had a contract 
with schools to get one-gallon containers, metal containers. An egg can is a metal container, by the way. And so they would just drop truckloads over there. Now, here's the problem. They didn't have drain holes. So you had to have a special machine that would punch the holes in the container. It would punch four holes all at one time when you press down on a pedal. So we got very good and efficient. Grab one, punch it, throw it over in there. Grab one, punch it. Oh, my gosh. How long would that take out of your day? It could, in a day, you would do a truckload or so or half a truckload, and then they'd be ready. Now, another thing is they were full of food residue. Oh, my God. <laughs> so sometimes they could get very smelly. Also, uh, wasps and bees would be flying around. So did you have to sanitize them before? You we didn't sanitize them. I always felt like it's organic. Maybe it'll help the well, plants. It's like compost. <laughs> yeah, like compost. <laughs> And the trick is you get the soil and put it in there and then get the plant in there as quickly as you could. So we pretty quickly filled up the nursery between digging plants and propagating plants and buying liners from other people. So it's truly a labor of love because of, I mean, that sounded very physical. It was, oh, I loved it. It was physical, yeah. There was only like two or three employees at that time. What you soon learn is that you can propagate plants geometrically. Explain that to me. Well, it's like that mum. You have one mum, and you get 100 cuttings off of it. That makes 100 plants. Now, what if you started with 100 mums, and you got 100 cuttings off of each, each one? Or let's say you start with one plant, and you got 10 off of it, and then you got to cut those 10, and then you have 100. So before long, we had way more plants than Garden Gate could sell or than Tommy could use in his landscapes. So I approached them, and I said, we need to start selling to other people. They were against the idea at first. But as the inventory grew, they realized that that was a possible thing. So we started selling plants to other people in Jacksonville, Tampa, Orlando. And if the people couldn't come and get it, we only had one vehicle to deliver with. It was an old bread van. And that's how we got plants to Garden Gate. And that's how I took plants down to Orlando and I took plants up to Tallahassee, and I took plants to Jacksonville. And it was uh, always sort of a death-defying act to jump in that van and take the plants. But Tommy and Riley were very smart. They were buying plants from other people. Like we used to get roses from Nelson's Florida Roses in Apopka. And they said, well, you go drop the plants at Pool and Fuller, and then the way back, can you stop and pick up roses for us? Well, picking up roses and unloading them in the bread van, they would fill it up to the top, lean stacked. And if you're dealing with roses, you're going to get all cut up. Yeah. Now, they would load the truck, but I'd have to unload the truck. Well, it's a hazardous job. It's hazardous. Yeah. We well, that's interesting. I never realized that San Velasco actually started only to supply plants to its, its own business. Yes, that's how we started. and But at some point... Tommy and Riley decided they didn't want to do that anymore. And so one day we had a conversation. They said, we're going to buy you out. and We're not going to do wholesale anymore. And I went home and thought about it. And um, again, someone gave me a good piece of advice. They said, no, they don't want to sell wholesale. You buy them out. You keep the customers. Move the nursery to your own piece of property. So that's how we started in 1981. We split up the nursery. 
they kept probably two-thirds of every block of plants, and I got a third of each block of plants, and I moved them to another location down the road. And all I had was a, an old pickup truck and a farm wagon that had some sides on it, and I had to make hundreds of trips back and forth because I could only get 200 plants on the cart and then whatever I could fit in the bed of my truck. And yeah, I bought 15 acres, and it was probably six miles down the road from them. We kept the name San Palasco Nurseries, Inc., and we kept the customers. And they're very nice about it because they continued to be a customer. So we sold to them, and we sold to other retail nurseries in town. There weren't very many at the time. We would sell to some Seminole stores and Florida Pest Control, and then the landscape companies that were there at the time, like Oasis Landscape. So that was the beginning. So our first field... Uh, the 15 acres had a house on it. We had to re-roof. I had a partner briefly. A named house, to a residential house or a greenhouse? No, it, it was a house. Uh, a wooden building, they called them Flavettes. It stood for Florida Veterans. It had been moved from the University of Florida campus. So after World War II, with the GI Bill, they had a lot of veterans going back to school. So they had these little wooden barracks Oh. They were called flavettes, and uh, you know, you, if you had a family, you could live in a flavette. So this had been moved out there, and that became our first office. But it was also chemical storage, and it was a place we had lunch. It was everything. Yeah, it was one little house. It was probably a thousand square feet, and we made our first fields. We put up our first shade cloth, and we bought a sprayer. We had a delivery vehicle. It was. It was pretty exciting in the early days. It was just two of us. Yeah. And Ellen would come out sometimes and make cuttings. We have pictures of her making cuttings. While I was pregnant. Yeah, and then later, <laughs> Rachel would come out with you when she was just a little girl. We have pictures of that as well. And where did you get your um, plant material? That Now, were you still digging trees out of the hammock? Or? No, we weren't doing... No, it wasn't my property. I, I didn't really like the idea of digging trees anyway. Now, mostly what we we're doing was growing things from cuttings, and we would go out and find like a freshly planted uh, hedge of boxwood that needed to be cut back, and s oftentimes we would ask permission. Sometimes we wouldn't ask permission and felt like we were just trimming it up and making it look nicer. And junipers were a big thing back in the, the day. We probably had 20 different kinds of juniper, and we would just go and take a tip here, a tip there, a tip there, and you wouldn't even know we were there. Ligostrum, viburnum, you know, we had all the common landscaping plants. Well, and that was the trend, still tends to be the trend, but you um, bucked the trend in terms of the, the type of plants, the number of varieties, um, and that's like, in my mind, that's what San Felesco was known right. for. You could go there and there would be a smorgasbord yeah. of But at plants. first we didn't. At first we grew all the common stuff that everybody else was growing. Tell us about the transition then into, you know, why did you decide to offer such a diverse mix of plants? Well, we had been going at it for four or five years, and one of our customers was a retail nursery in town called Grandiflora. It was right near the Oaks Mall. It was in a beautiful location. They had a nice facility. They declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is reorganization. And I went to the hearings, and uh, there was a man named Colonel Glykes. Sitting next to the colonel, I said, if 
this guy ever goes chapter seven, will you give us a chance to run the nursery here? And he remembered. And sure enough, after a year, Grandiflora went belly up and meeting with the colonel, I told him that I would like to, to have a retail nursery. And the reasoning here was that I thought it'd be a lot easier to sell plants through our own retail nursery. So I'm growing the plants and I'm selling them at the retail price instead of the wholesale price. That sounded like a good deal to me because retailers use double wholesale back in the day. So he let us take over. The place was a mess. Uh, I don't know how I was able to run the wholesale nursery and come over there and completely redo the property, put down new ground cloth, irrigation, build a greenhouse, build two greenhouses, fixed up the building, painted it. And we actually kept some of the people that worked there whom I had gotten to know when I was selling them plants. Really good people like Bruce Cavey and Donna. Donna. And uh, so we kept people and it seemed like it was going to be a, a good thing because I could bring plants from my own wholesale nursery and stick them there, kind of determine what I wanted them to sell, what to put on sale. And everything was going well, but we considered the idea that Ellen should quit working as a teacher and should become the manager. And she agreed to do it. So the deal, though, was she didn't want to work on the weekends. So because we had two other managers, they alternated weekends and Ellen only had to work Monday through Friday. When we had a festival, which we did frequently, we would both come in there and work at like Hot Pepper Festival, Crepe Myrtle Festival, Rose Festival. And uh, the plant shop took off uh, during our best year. I think we did a million dollars. And Greenery Square, where the plant shop was, had six different horticultural businesses which was a really nice concept because you might come in there to get your lawnmower fixed at Garden Service and Sales or to talk to the landscape architect that had an office there, Jim Law at Greenworks, or talk to the fence builder, Phil Strack, or maybe you, uh, what else did we have there? The patio Oh, shop. patio designs had all kinds of patio furniture. So something brought you in there, but oh, while I'm here, I'm going to go over and buy some fertilizer or buy a plant or yeah. a house plant. Sounds and like we also later on had a florist shop there as well. And uh, we won an FNGLA award for having the best retail nursery in Florida. Well, congratulations. How did, you, how did you enjoy being in the retail business, Ellen? Well, I loved it because I'm a people person. So I loved um, the customers coming in. And a lot of customers would just come in just to relax and see what was new, a lot of times they didn't really buy anything, but it was their peaceful, tranquil, meditative moment that they would do, and they'd come in every week, and of course, eventually they bought plants, they wanted to see what was new, but um, that just made me feel so good that our nursery was not only a place where people could buy plants uh, and utilize them however they needed, but they also just found it to be a beautiful place where all of our employees were just um, very patient and um, caring and, and really turned people on to new things. And, and they may leave and they'd come back on the weekend and say, okay, I want to get that plant. So it, it was good. you know. Yeah, and, even if you don't make an immediate sale, if you are very nice to people, They'll remember, oh, I need 
a floral arrangement and they would come and they would order it from us or when they're ready to do the planting. And we had very good garden designers, not landscape architects, worked for us and they could come and do a consultation for you and tell you what to plant. And if you bought the plants from us, you got a discount from that consultation. Another thing we did is we did a lot of things for the community through the plant shop, donating plants and Habitat for Humanity, having all sorts of events, uh, garden tours that we that benefited Kanapaha Botanical Gardens. I I realize now that, um, or I I have known that you both were involved with community groups in Gainesville, and I just was thinking it was because you had lived there in the nursery, but the garden center would be what had really connected you with the, the community there and to be so active. Yeah, that's but. definitely when it started. And of course, when you belong in a small community like Gainesville or what was a small community, it's not that small anymore, people would come and ask for donations or involvement. So before you knew it, you didn't want to say no. And so... Um, but it came back Yeah, many times it, over. It always did. And it was just, um, I think when we were there, we did 13 habitat homes oh that's awesome and most of the time alan donated all the plants for those homes and um because you probably had specific plants you wanted there didn't you well they had specific plants that they could only use because they back in the day and still um only want hardy native plants and so they have a plant list that you try and and stick by as much low as you can. Plants. Low maintenance mm-hmm. because the new owners really knew nothing about plants. But um, we also gave them tools, you know, first-time tools that they would need to take care of the plants and know-how and tell them that any time they needed help, you know, we would come back and, and help them with and that. And you donated so. flowers to the Performing Arts Center? Uh, we did so many different things that involved either our florist or the garden. So we... We kind of became a little bit more known in the community, and so that's always a good feeling, you know, when you see people and they're always so grateful and thankful for. Alan has notebooks and notebooks full of thank you notes that people he's he has saved them all to this day, um, just to remember all the many organizations that he donated plants to, and when we drove around town, we'd say. This median has all these crepe myrtles. They all came from Alan. So, you know. Your lasting legacy. So so we we have left plants everywhere. And so we see them. And it gives us, of course, great satisfaction. And then you um, sold the plant shop eventually? We eventually sold the plant shop. I'll let Alan tell that that story, how that happened. Well, in 2000, we sold the plant shop to one of our employees whose father had been in the plant business. So that was fine. It was pretty complicated having two businesses and Ellen sort of got tired of it and went back to teaching. And then also she, later on, she came back and worked at San Velasco Nursery up till the end. Off and on, she would fire herself and then come back and fire herself. Well, that's a nice way. You can yeah. be a strong employee when it you is. want and take a it break. It is, when and you when want. you need to go home and do something with your kids, you know, you're always available, so that was nice. It's, it was a very different, I call it a different planet from retail. Retail and wholesale were right. pretty different. Well, remember, I was on City Beautification Board, and that's why we did a lot of plantings around town. 
and I would donate plants to them. But we also got very involved in Kanapa Botanical Gardens, which started up around the same time as our nursery, sort of a struggling botanical garden, but on a huge piece of property. It's actually the second largest botanical garden in the state, or was at the time, behind Fairchild. And so we had fundraisers for them. We donated a lot of stuff to them. I think I gave them their first golf cart. <laughs> and uh, that's when I got started getting active in FNGA at the time. And the reason that I got active was because some of the other nurserymen that I'd, I'd gotten to know. Like, I remember when I worked at Garden Gate and this guy named Bill Reese drove in in a pickup truck loaded to the top with Juniper Parsoni three-gallon. And he said, can I talk to the owner? And I said, yeah. So I got Riley out there and Tommy, and we were looking at his Parsoni Juniper, which were the best Parsoni Juniper I'd ever seen. And so we agreed to buy a truckload from him. Pickup truck. Pickup. Yeah, that's how he was <laughs> delivering it. Pickup truck at a time. Also, in that time is when I got to know Jim Salmon from Ocala, and I would say the two of them had a big influence on me, and Bob Burns out at Trail Ridge. Uh, actually, at the time, he and Dave Stoner were the owners of Turkey Oak Nursery and Archer, and they also sold plants to us through Garden Gate. So Bill Reese, Jim Salmon, Bob Burns, those guys really helped shape what I became. And one, one way they shaped me was they got me involved in International Plant Propagator Society. So I remember the first year that they talked me into going with them, we went out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So the IPPS, the southern region, is 16 states, and Oklahoma was the furthest west state. And we had a great time, and I listened to seminars, and I, I was like a sponge taking in all this information. I bet, because the propagation was what really initially attracted you to yes. plant production. And with uh, FNGA, we were the front runners chapter in Alachua and Marion County. And the way we did things was uh, we would go to each other's nurseries. So this month we're going to Salmon's Nursery. He's going to have a barbecue. Next month we're going to be at Greenbrier. He's going to do a fish fry. Next month we're going to be at Trail Ridge Nursery, and they're going to do fried chicken. And we always had a speaker. We always had a program. And then our chapter did a lot of activities together, like having a tree sale and supporting an azalea sale. And eventually that led to the Spring Garden Festival uh, that occurs each year at, at Kanapa. I think they've done it over 34 times already. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Front Runners chapter is still very active. I, the, what you described is very similar to how it still operates, and some of those same people are involved, and you certainly, uh, I know, did a lot to keep that as right. a strong well, chapter. Well, Bill Reese got involved in association politics very early. Even though we started in the nursery business about the same time, he was older than me. He had been a manager at Winn-Dixie's before he got involved in the plant business. And he got into association politics, and he rose to become president of the state. And later on, uh, he became an ass, an Alan Shapiro supporter. Oh, so I he, forgot that, but I remember, yes, he yes. was proud to be an ass. Yes, yeah. he nominated me for running for, for the board of directors at the time, and he said he got, he's an ass, an Alan Shapiro supporter, and sure enough, I got elected to the board of directors, and back in the day, you had to serve on the board for like six years before you could ever get to be president, and I worked my way up, and I got to be president in 1996. 
And that was when the FNGLA building we're sitting in was was completed. Mm-hmm. You were on the planning committee. In fact, there was an um, elaborate landscape plan, and all of the the grounds were going to be landscaped. And I remember you saying, "No, wait, we need this area with no plants because what about overflow parking?" Oh yeah, and. Um, that was such a wise thing. Having worked in this building for more than 20 years, we have used the over, the Alan Shapiro overflow parking area <laughs> many, many times. So that was good thinking. Well, another thing you may not remember, of course, Tommy Aiello came up with a crew and he installed all the landscaping and maybe some other local people worked on it. But Tommy and I got together and said, you know what, we're going to get all these plants donated. And we... You went did. around and got all the plants for this office donated. Yeah, it was. It's and it's still a, a beautiful landscape. Yeah. Now at the time we had a, a wonderful executive director. His name was Earl Wells. And if you were to ask who my mentors were, of course I mentioned Jim Salmon, Bill Reese, Bob Burns. But Earl Wells uh, made us a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I remember uh, as vice president knowing that I was president-elect, he said, we're going to have to shape you up. We're going to have to take you out and get you some clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, uh, the year before I became president, I got a tuxedo. I got two sports coats. And when we we're in Atlanta, he took me shopping for shoes. I had to get wingtips. Oh, you're kidding. Which That's are still <laughs> sitting in my closet. I think I want to donate them back to the FNGLA. We'll take them, yeah. And then I remember the days uh, when Earl announced he was going to retire. Luckily, it wasn't under my watch. It was under the next president's watch, George Fenora. And everyone was very sad about that. But we got a wonderful new executive director, Ben Belusky. And I remember when he was first introduced to us and came down from Baltimore or Washington. Yeah, he came from Washington. Yeah. And what a great job he did over the years. So talking, let's go back to uh, the nursery, and um, I think people yeah. will be interested in, again, this huge array of and diversity of plants. Okay, so you want to know why we grew so many different plants? Yes. Compared to, I mean, most nurseries, they, they grew bread, the things they knew were going to sell, the bread and butter. If they were going to be a tree nursery, they grew trees, or annuals were going to grow annuals. Right. You had it all. Well, the... The wisdom was do one thing and do it right. And I've always gone against all that kind of advice. So um, our specialty, I used to say, was variety. But here's how it came about. So we had the plant shop. We actually had a second location for two years. I thought the plant shop was going to go international. I thought we'd have franchises of the plant shop all over the place. But it didn't come to be. Um, We did have an interesting concept. And... You know, a nice thing about the plant shop is if a plant started looking bad, a regular retail nursery would probably have to throw it away. At our nursery, they could just send it back out and we could cut it back and reflush it. Also, if we had too much of something at San Falasco, I'd say, Al, I think you better run a sale on crepe myrtles and we just bring her a bunch of crepe myrtles. We'd put them on sale and we'd blow them out. I'd get more than, well, let's say I put them on sale at the wholesale price through the wholesale nursery, I would get very little money. But if we ha- took it to the retail nursery and said 50% off, then we'd still get we'd our still money get and more. Price, yeah. So that worked very well. But the other thing I realized is I would come into the retail nursery and see that Ellen had bought Lantana or Heather or 
justitia or something else that I knew was very easy to grow. So I made up our mind, my mind, that we were going to grow all those things, as many of those different plants that she was buying for the retail nursery. So instead of her buying 100 heather, we'll grow 200 heather and maybe we'll sell 100 to somebody else. Well, heather, lantana, all this stuff got very popular because people wanted color. So we, we said, hmm, color for the wholesale nursery. Why don't we promote that we grow a lot of color? We were already growing a lot of color. We were growing colorful trees like crepe myrtles, colorful bushes like azaleas. And another thing that was an outgrowth of uh, having a retail nursery was that I decided uh, we wanted to buy in plants from other nurseries. I was already buying stuff for the retail nursery. So if Harold's from Tampa came and delivered 25 azaleas to Ellen, they could deliver 200 azaleas to me and I could hold them for Ellen or I could sell them to somebody else. And so that's how we got into what they call re-wholesaling. So once Harold's delivered a plant to us, it was ours. It wasn't Harold's anymore. We would brand it. We would put our tag on it. And we were responsible for it. It could die before it sold. It could get bugs before it sold. But we would uh, advertise it on our price list. And so that brings up another thing is as you have a growing inventory of all these different plants, how do you keep track of it? So we had to have good software. And we tried one software program that wasn't very good, but eventually we went with a company called SBI, and it was perfect for keeping track of all of our inventory, doing invoices, uh, doing statements that were sent out. It was all like automatic once you put the information in. So uh, that had to be a huge benefit to the it company. It was a huge benefit, yeah, especially knowing, you know, the a hundred acres. With, uh, 2,700 varieties of plants would be a lot to keep track of. Well, then you have to think about how do you market your plants if you're in the wholesale business? Well, some people would have an on-the-road salesman. They would load up his van, and he would make a circuit around each week to different areas showing the samples, and then he'd have to dump those samples because they look bad after a week and get another, go around the nursery and get more samples. Well, we did a little of that. We had a van and we had an on-the-road salesman. But another way that you sell your plants is you go to trade shows. And I, I thank Bill Reese and Jim Salmon for teaching me about this, and particularly Bill Reese, because he was a showman. His booths always had some gimmick to make people stop. Now, you go to a trade show that has four or 500 booths of plants, and how are you going to stick out from everybody mm-hmm. else? Azaleas and azaleas and azaleas. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, first, have different plants, which we tried to do, have different, more color and unusual plants, and a lot of flowering stuff. But also, we learned from Bill that it's to get attention, you have to maybe dress funny or have a theme or maybe the whole booth is a theme like we did in Alan's Wonderland. Alan, your booths were famous for their themes. Well, we won a lot of booth yeah, awards won, over the years. It was unusual for San Falasco not yeah. to win. It was, sometimes they were pretty hokey, but still it would get attention. Sometimes I was always surprised artistic. your employees would dress up and some of those outfits. Not only did they love dressing up, but they loved creating the booths. We had some very elaborate booths. One time we built a spaceship. You remember we had men in green instead of men in black? Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that one. I remember when you all came as painters and you had color, right. you know, because you were selling that color. That was promoting color. Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. So we had 
colorful perennials and shrubs and trees. And also, after we filled up the first 25 acres of nursery, none of my neighbors would sell me any property. But there was another nursery in town that the plant shop was buying annuals, herbs, and vegetables from called Stein's Greenhouses. And the two of them were college professors, and they got a job at Amherst, UMass, and they had to leave town real fast. They had a deal to sell their nursery, and it fell through. And the price came down, and we were looking for land, and we were able to buy their property, 15 more acres, and it came with greenhouses, a delivery vehicle, employees, a full inventory of annuals and herbs, and it was a perfect fit. Oh, my god! So that's how we got into the annual and herb business. They also grew poinsettias and mums, which we did. So that was perfect for selling through our retail nursery. Right. We used to grow 2,000 poinsettias. That was plenty. And she would get rid of most of them. And uh, so that was another way we got into color. So now I we did. had annual color. And there's always somebody, if you have purple, blue, and yellow pansies, they want a white pansy. So that's, you're saying, how do we get so many different varieties? Well, because we tried to listen to what people were asking for and provide it for them. It's no harder to grow a white pansy than a yellow, purple, or blue. You just have to keep them separate. And how did you become um, so, I don't know if the right word is famous, well-known for the perennials? I mean, that you were the place people went to to find perennials. And... Um, when we talked to Katie Moss Warner, when she was talking about the Disney days, and she explained when Disney started, people didn't think annuals would grow in Florida. And it wasn't until they really did trials and experiment that they found, yes, annuals will grow in Florida, but you need to know what cultivars to use. And I wonder if perennials were kind of like that because people didn't think of you know, Florida is being the great place to, to use perennials in the landscape. Well, perennials have a different definition depending on where you are in the country. Because something that may be perennial in Gainesville, Orlando, or South Florida may not be perennial in Washington or Texas. So we had to do some experimenting. Actually, what happened is we realized that a lot of the colorful plants we were growing were perennial in our area, that you could grow... Uh, Give me an example, um, like a pink Jacobinia, and maybe it would die down during the winter, but it would always come back up. So a lot of the tropical stuff was actually perennial in Gainesville, as long as we didn't have 20-degree weather for a week. So uh, just think of all the different justitias. We're talking about pink shrimp plant, white shrimp plant, yellow shrimp plant. We're talking about uh, Jacobinias in pink and purple and odontonemas, and there are so many different things that can, and then hibiscus. What we did is we looked around Gainesville and saw what survived the winter that wasn't a woody plant. Because to me, a perennial is a non-woody plant. Maybe it has a little wood at the bottom after the end of the growing season. It's an herbaceous plant that comes back year after year and usually comes back stronger and can spread. And there are many plants that fit that definition. And also uh, another part of that definition, I think, is blooms over a long period of time. And unlike an annual, you don't have to rip it out each year. So it's a lazy man's plant with color. So think of Roselia. Think of uh, Hibiscus coccinius, swamp mallow. Think of 
things like that, that come back year after year. Yes, you may have to cut them down at the end of the summer. Ornamental grasses are another good example. Flowering vines that are not woody vines. So we built on that, and we promoted ourselves as providing a lot of color. And I was talking about the ways that we promoted our product through trade shows, and we also put out a catalog with pictures. And that catalog grew to be about 84 pages, and we would send it to 1,000 customers, and it cost a lot of money. I was going to say, this was before there were websites where you could just right. have this information. You were yeah. having to pay to get that printed. Yeah, and when you went to a trade show, you put your catalogs out there, and everybody takes them, even the little kid that's just yeah. trying to get candies and stuff. So we, we had to be kind of cautious about who took our catalogs. They were so expensive, I think $2 each. But it was well, well worth it right. to get the word out. And we, had a, we put together a beautiful catalog that a lot of our customers said they used like a Bible. But then when computers came around, we put everything on, on the web. And that was so much better because you could also order over the web. So people didn't have to call and talk to us for an hour going down the list of what's available. We could send them an availability sheet and they could just put numbers in it, fax it back to us or email it back to us. So we got pretty efficient at that to the point where we had as many as eight semi-trucks in our busiest year and a couple of straight trucks and vans, and we were covering seven or eight southeastern states. So we're going out to Baton Rouge, it's about as far west as we went, and then up into Wilmington, North Carolina, was about as far north. Well, and you talked about you were doing re, re And that was on a regular weekly basis. We had a regular run to Hilton Head every Tuesday and Friday. We went to... Um, Columbia, South Carolina on another day, and we went to Tallahassee and Pensacola on another day. So it was a regular route, and people knew they had to call in or send in their order two days before. And unlike uh, other businesses, we were pulling plants the day that we were shipping them. Yeah. You were um, not just in the nursery business, you were in the logistics business. We were also in the logistics yes. business, and I'll tell you, having trucks is the hardest, most difficult part of it all. Yeah. I know some nourishment, like Tropic Traditions, that uh, most of his customers come and pick up plants from him. They'll send trucks. And I think he has the right idea. Yeah. If I had it all to do over again, I don't think I would be in the trucking business. Well, I was going to say, you, I, I think we're ahead of the curve doing the re-wholesaling. I don't think there are a lot of people doing that. And then you went even a step further because you would package orders for people. Right, like if you didn't grow it, and but a customer wanted a mix of plants, you would find them and send them all. That well, it got to the point where we would have almost as many trucks coming into the nursery as going out of the nursery because <laughs> we were buying lots of stuff from other people. Sometimes it would sit there for a day. Sometimes it would sit there for a week. I mean, the, obviously, we didn't want it to sit there long. We didn't want to have to fertilize it or spray it. So one field was dedicated to all the plants that were being brought in for re-wholesale. So we would keep a 1,000 evergreen giants at a time. It got to the point where I could grow evergreen giant, but I could buy it cheaper and resell it and, and never have to take care of it. That, if I kept a 1,000 in stock at all, all times from other people, if I had grown a 1,000 a week to sell, it would have taken me like an acre. 
Right. Here it only mm-hmm. took an area that was 10 feet wide and 150 feet long. You were, um, I think, really um, good at um, efficiencies um, yeah. and high quality. Well, it was like juggling. And, you know, I didn't sell the Evergreen Giant for the same price. I, ha- I tried to buy it as cheaply as I could, volume discounts and all kinds of concessions from the people we're buying from. And they knew we paid well, and so they treated us very well. Some of my best friends in the business were the people I was buying from, as well as the people I was selling to. Yeah, the nursery industry is unique that way. Right. That they're your competitors. And I felt like I was doing customers. them a favor by locating plants for them. Yeah. And so, you know, it was complicated business, and that's why, in the end, I couldn't sell it to anybody. When I wanted to retire, I couldn't find anyone to buy it. I can't say that I tried that hard. My daughters weren't interested in working in the plant business and well i know there are still people in the industry that bemoan the loss of uh say at, by that time grandiflora but where you could just go and have this right. wonderful collection of beautiful well, we tried to be a one-stop products. shop so when our truck came in there might have been 25 flats of annuals and herbs in four inch pots there might have been a 15 gallon tree there could have been a so um sago palms for instance we didn't grow any sago palms but i think i sold over a thousand a year 15 gallon we bought them in from other people and i always tried to get the very best quality for the best price i didn't want to take junk right and um there might have been 50 ligostrum 100 azaleas it could have been one gallon ground covers vines everything we had trucks that had infinitely adjustable shelves where you could leave shelves out for a section so the trees could stand up. And people like that. Yeah. We had some very good customers like the Greenery in Hilton Head. You're very clever, Alan. <laughs> I thought I was. Um, and you mentioned about learning what plants were perennial or not, and that it takes us to the topic of education because I think you did a lot to try not just to to know, I mean, you were always, and I think I still see you at industry education um, events. And like you said, I think you were a sponge trying to learn everything you could. Um, but you wanted others to learn too and to be successful. And, and do I, am I remembering correctly the what we eventually called the floriculture field day was a perennial field day that you did like at your home? No. Um- it was an event that was at the nursery. We wanted to teach our customers more about how to use the perennials and to, to promote the perennials. So we started having speakers come to the nursery, and we would give tours, and they could listen to speakers. I remember the first time we did it, it was in our barn. It was hot. We had to uh, close the doors to the barn to, so we could project images, and it was miserable. But later on, we moved to a hotel. Mm-hmm. Best Western, and we had big name speakers that were all experts in the perennial industry, like Alan Armitage from University of Georgia, Tony Avent from Plant Delights, just anybody and everybody you could think of in the business. Carol Reese came and spoke, and it got to be a big event. And then later on, when Rick, Dr. Rick Schulhorn, who had been teaching up at University of Florida Milton, when he 
came to the University of Florida in Gainesville, I proposed to him that we do this jointly. And I guess he and Dr. Barrett uh, somehow managed to put together the idea of doing a trial garden at the University of Florida. And so that was a good run for several years. We had giant floriculture field days. Actually, they were called perennial field days at, be at yeah, the that's beginning. And then became floriculture yeah, field day because there was annuals and there was herbs and there was other things that weren't perennial necessarily. And it was, what, the, the trials were open for two days? It, I would just it remember was a two day going event. and there would be hundreds, there maybe hundreds thousands hundreds of, of people, people well, there. Well, not thousands, yeah, but, but a couple it hundred. Was, <laughs> it was yeah. a, always a, a lot of interest, and, and the you know, UF uh, staff would go through and talk about each, you know, the different things that they had tried. And, um, well, the more you teach your customers how to use the plants, landscapers, retail nurseries, how to sell the plants to their customers, the more plants you're going to sell. Yeah. And in the meantime, I sort of fell in love with perennials. I joined what's called the Perennial Plant Association. And the first meeting I went to was up in North Carolina. And then they, they're an organization that's nationwide. So we've been to meetings in Denver, Salt Lake City. They're going to have one in Niagara Falls. Wherever there's a hotspot of perennial horticulture, there'll be a meeting there. And that is really the experts in the industry and particularly that deal with perennials. And so that's been a fun group to be a part of. I think you have a knack for um, connecting your ideas with people that you know. and Yeah, I and, try to create synergies. And yes, and from that comes... Just like you're saying, from this this program you did in your at your nursery, eventually became a nationally known event with you know one of the well, greatest. Well, it's because the FNGLA jumped in as a third partner, and then one year the University of Florida didn't have the money to do the trial gardens, and Walt Disney was already doing a trial, so we moved the whole thing down to Orlando, and we got Orange uh, Extension. And so we had, and Lou Gardens, so that's, an, we had a bunch of partners right. then. And, and another example of that where I feel like you were the uh, initiator is um, the Spring Garden Festival at Kanapaha, mm -hmm. which started, I read, in 1991, you know, and um, before that there was no such thing. And now they have thousands of people come in, hundreds yeah. of vendors, I mean, lots of fundraising. I'll tell you the story behind that. Tell us. Our front runners chapter of the FNGLA used to have a tree sale where we had one gallon trees and we would sell them to the public. And it was done at Westside Park. And I think maybe the Gainesville Sun was a sponsor of the event. And the retail nursery was saying, why are you guys selling trees? Let them come buy it from the retail nursery. We also had another local event that was this, an azalea sale where the azaleas were like in a four-inch pot. And that, I think, also was the Gainesville Sun. And the retail nurserymen felt like they were being hurt by flooding the market with trees and azaleas right. when they should be the ones that are selling it. At the time, also, the state of Florida would sell bare root trees to people for pennies. Right, I remember that. And so I had just gotten on the board of 
board of directors of FNGLA, I think. Or maybe I was just getting into it at the local level. And I was sensitive to their complaints. And I said, we shouldn't be selling plants directly to the public. Let the retailers sell the plants to the public. So we kind of put our heads together and figured, and I had seen an example somewhere else of this, where they put on a festival where you rented a space to the retail nurseries or the landscape contractors to demonstrate how they would do a landscape or to somebody selling patio furniture or a fence builder. And since I loved Kanapa Botanical Gardens and wanted to, them to benefit as well, we talked to Don Goodman and we put together Spring Garden Festival. We also had members of the City Beautification Board that and went on this. Don Goodman was? Don Goodman was the director of Kanapa. He was the founder and he was in charge. And so we all got together and decided on this two-day event and we saw booths. I think that at one time we had 250 booths sold. We had artists. The stipulation was it had to deal with horticulture. You couldn't just be an artist selling any kind of junk. It had to be natural materials or pictures of nature. And it was a very successful event. We had musicians, food. And it's been going on for years. I know it's coming up in, in a month, I think. It's in March. Yeah, very successful event. Yeah. And it, again, it takes somebody who can has idea, can connect the pieces to make something like that happen. And you seem to fall in that position. Yeah, often. I always seem to get stuck <laughs> being in charge of those kinds of things. Well, I think you are definitely a why not person. I like when people sort of imply something shouldn't be done or can't be done. Like those people that said, you have to specialize. You can't have so many different things. Well, I proved you could do it. You just can't sell it to anybody when you're ready to retire. <laughs> it has to be just the right person doing it, maybe. Yeah. Actually, the way, the reason it worked is because I had a really good group of people. I had wonderful growers. Just think of San, San Falasco, which uh, we probably need to talk about how the name changed, but we had this business that had, it grew trees. That's like a whole nursery for trees, a whole nursery for shrubs, a whole nursery for perennials, whole for annuals, whole for specialty crops like mums and poinsettias. And we did it all on one property. We had different manager for each section and we had different pickers that would have to go out and pick the order like somebody would have to go get the annuals from the annual department and somebody would have to get the shrubs from the shrub department. Somebody have to go out and get the trees and they all had to meet on the loading dock and be on the same cart to be loaded in the exact right order to be offloaded. A semi truck could have six to 10 orders on it mm. and they'd all have to be planned out the route. And that's where the general manager came in who okay. planned all that and the driver had to be there just the right time to leave, to be at the first stop at 7 in the morning. It was so complicated. I don't know how it all worked. Sometimes it didn't work, but usually it worked. And we had really good customers that if we told them we're coming at 8 and we didn't get there till 9, they still accommodated us. And so speaking of your team, um, I'm under the impression that you, I guess being close to UF and their Hort Club and department, it seems like it wasn't unusual for someone I've met in FNGLA say, oh, yeah, I used to work. I, when I was in school, I went and worked either at the plant shop or at <laughs> Sam Falasco. So I think 
you you trained a lot of people and also had the benefit of maybe hiring yeah. some but of let's those. say they worked for me i'm not sure i trained them i may never have seen them once <laughs> they started working there uh but, your but system, we did have yeah. a lot of children of owners of nurseries like gray's nursery even tim salen from cherry lake worked for us for a short while i'm very proud of that uh the owners of big tree their son worked for us for a long time so yeah there's a lot of people that have worked for us and some that worked for us and went on to become managers of other businesses. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm kind of pr proud of that legacy. I did want to get back to how we got the name Grandiflora during yes. the last few years. Wait, now, was that the name of the retail that you? Yes, if okay. you remember early Nine. on in the interview, the nursery that went bankrupt that we took over and we called it the plant shop because I didn't want to call it Grandiflora because right. it had a stigma to it. Right. So I remember... When we were at, uh, when we used to go and deliver plants to Grandiflora, they had a cute little tag. It said "Grandiflora Grown," and that alliterative oh, yeah. little slogan stuck in my head: "Grandiflora Grown." So after a long, long time of being called San Velasco Nursery, which no one could pronounce or or spell, and remember, San Velasco Nursery came from the fact that the original nursery was in the San Velasco hammock. So I bought that corporation, and that's the name of the corporation, San Velasco Nursery. I'm Inc. guilty of never knowing how to spell it. Yeah. I always would switch the E and the A. Yeah. People would say San Fiasco or even worse. <laughs> but eventually I determined if we're going to promote a, ourselves as the color experts and we're going to get on into this line of perennials and we're going to put out this fancy color catalog with pictures and we're going to have a web presence, we need to change the name. So we went to the trouble of registering the name Grandiflora, and we um, legally became San Velasco Nurseries, Inc., DBA Grandiflora. And from that point on, everything was Grandiflora. So we, ta uh, we got tags made by, what's the big tag company? Um, Master Tag? No, not Master Tag. Was there Connelly? John Henry. Oh, John Henry. John Henry. Okay. They were very good. They designed a logo for us. And they designed tags for us. And from then on, we went with their logo, which I really liked. It was on all of our T-shirts and hats. People would want us to give them a free T-shirt. If good customers, we would right. bring them free T-shirts. And it was on everything we we put our name to, Grandiflora with our logo. I remember when you made that transition and we're like, what? You're changing your name? And you're like, no, or, you know, but. It you know, there were a lot of expenses we incurred because we sold to retail nurseries. So one thing is that everything had to have a tag and our competitors would do a tag. It was very generic. It would say perennial mm -hmm. or it might say lantana. Wouldn't say what color. Well, we were growing 30 or 40 different colors of lantana. Every one of them had to have a tag. Oh my goodness. And it had to. And I took the pictures for all of our tags, and we would send them. I mean, we had a room that was just full of tags. Did you have care instructions? It had care on instructions well? in the back. Yep, it had a picture of the flower of the plant. That's so important on the retail side. It was, and we yeah. felt it was worth the expense. And we didn't charge that much more than anyone else. Maybe we were cheaper than a lot of people, but we felt we were charging a fair price for our plants. I caught fast five, but sometimes it doesn't go so fast. Uh, questions for you. Quick answers. Quick answers? If you um, are ready. Is this like, what's my favorite sandwich? Yes. 
Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Stephen Colbert I'll ask you both. questions. Okay. <laughs> so this is probably the hardest question to ask both mm-hmm. of you. What is your favorite plant and why? Hmm. Oh, gosh, that is a hard question because I love so many plants. And actually, one of the arguments I have with Alan the most is like, why did you buy another plant? <laughs> because we have such a small yard. But I would say it's going to be a perennial, and I would say the whole salvia. Um, I really have found them to be cold-hardy, and the varieties just keep getting better and more colorful. And um, I would have said begonias, but now I'm finding that begonias, even the hardy begonias, are a little bit harder than I anticipated. So I'm going to stick to salvias. Now, if you said, what's your favorite bird, I could say painted bunting. No No question. But as far as plants, I guess I was always attracted to gingers. Now, that's pretty broad because you've got costus, curcuma, adikium, and all that. But gingers in general, they're tropical. They're exotic looking. A lot of them smell good. They're beautiful, yes. Um, Okay, and because I know you've been to several of these, favorite botanical garden that you would say someone absolutely must visit, they get an opportunity I guess I better say Kanapaha. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Although okay. probably second uh, my second Kanapaha. one would be Longwood Gardens in, in uh, Pennsylvania. My favorite is Chanticleer, which is also near Longwood. They call it a pleasure garden, and it really is a delight to go to Chanticleer. Yeah, I like I Fairchild Tropical Gardens levels. a lot, too, but Chanticleer has got to be my favorite. Yeah, Chanticleer has different levels and views it's, it's garden so cool. rooms they would yeah. call it yeah it's very nice and um okay you might we'll have to come up with a different question than this for you but alan what uh is your best tip to give someone new to pickleball <laughs> smash it into your opponent as hard as you can <laughs> oh gosh that's a vicious <laughs> tip I'm about to learn pickleball, (laughs) but I don't know if I'll be able to do that. Um, Practice, practice, practice. With any sport, that's a good one. Now, you have to learn how to dink, and don't ask what dinking is. All right. Dinking is a critical skill. Be good at dinking. Yeah, practice dinking. All right, pickleball people, remember that. Uh, What book are you reading right now, or what book is next on your reading list? I'm reading a book named Notorious, just started reading that, and I go to the little um, friends library stands that they have in neighborhoods, and I just go through those, and I read what's on the back, and if it sounds interesting, I just pick it up and, and read it, so I've been hooked into that since I've retired. And what is Notorious a uh, Most of them turn out to be mystery murders. Yes. Uh-oh. Which like um, are fun. Some of them are a little scary, but uh, the one I'm reading is another mystery murder. You know, a whodunit. I love those. Yeah, I love those. Alan, I just finished reading the Drunken Botanist. So that book is about the fact that every liquor that's made, anything alcoholic, comes from a plant. All the garnishes that are used in drinks are all plants, plant-related, and all the mixers come from plants like Angostura bitters. 
comes from an Angostura tree. So it's very interesting, especially if you're in horticulture, to read that book, and especially if you like alcohol. Or when it start. And there's recipes. Drinking alcohol. And there you have it. Um, drinking alcohol is healthy plant. All vegetarians <laughs> should yep. be interested. All organic. Um, and then the last one, which is an obvious question I have to ask everyone. In one or two words, what is the best benefit of belonging to FNGLA? Oh. Friends and friends. I'm going to tell you that it's very good for business. The networking, if you're open to it, um, I mean, there's so many opportunities that are out there. If you get to talking to the suppliers, the uh, university people, the other growers, you can learn so much and you can share so much. Thank you. We have learned so much from both of you over the years and today with this episode. Thank you very much been a pleasure thank you you're welcome thanks for asking us if you enjoyed this episode of the plant people podcast and would like to sponsor future episodes reach out to the fnjla office for more information on fnjla visit our website at fngla.org